Hello and welcome to the St. Emlyn's podcast. I'm Simon Carley. And I'm Natalie May. And Natalie, we're going to be talking today about a bit of a conference roundup, I think. So been a few things happening recently in, well, in South Africa and in Australia, which we need to talk about. And oh, I think we should start with the weather, actually. We always seem to start with the weather on a St. Emlyn's podcast. It's um, 16 degrees and looking like a wonderful day in Verchester. Well, it's also 16 degrees here in New South Wales um, and it is beautiful blue skies, but it feels really cold, maybe because it's going to be winter tomorrow. And maybe because you've been out in Australia too long, to be honest. Yeah, that's true. I have adjusted. Yeah, so we're going to have a wonderful time here, but we've also had some amazing times in the last few months in the Southern Hemisphere, actually, because we both ended up going off to the Baddy M Fest conference in Greaton in South Africa, which was quite remarkable, actually, quite a different experience to a lot of other conferences that I go to. Yeah, I didn't really know what to expect, I'll be honest. I knew that given the people involved, it was going to be amazing. But it was one of those things where it felt like we were taking a chance. I think they felt they were taking a chance, but it came together in the most incredible way. And it was phenomenal. I had an amazing time. So the idea behind this was that when we go to conferences, yes, you get some experience out of seeing speakers. And if the quality of the lectures or the quality of the workshops is good, then that's great. But if you look back at the experience of real deep learning, it's often by the interactions, the discussions, almost a co-creation, which is a word which I've been using a lot recently, this co-creation of ideas and values and thoughts and plans for the future. And a lot of that happens outside of the formal sessions. It happens in the coffee queue or over a couple of drinks at the end. And what I think they were aiming for and did achieve was to really actively work on that and basically build a festival, which was also a conference. Yeah, it was very much about community. And I think we've had that at some other conferences previously, like the the early SMAC conferences when they were kind of smaller, not that SMAC doesn't have it now, but smaller conferences have that sense of community. But this was really different. I think the fact that everyone was together all the time, that it was residential, that it was family focused, it just had a totally different vibe. And I think it really worked. So, Details-wise, this is about two hours east of Cape Town. It's up in the hills. It's a beautiful, beautiful place. And everybody camped. So you sort of arrived, it was glamping, and there were tents for everybody. So there's a family area with big family tents, and you could have like an individual tent. You ate in the same place. The conference was basically intense. It's like these sort of massive teepee-type tents. Yeah, physically. Physically intense, not intense, as in emotionally intense. Yeah. at times. <laughs> I think, well, although that was pretty intense at some times, I mean, we'll talk about that in a minute, but I mean, some of the experiences that we had there were, were really very intense and some of the emotions that came out, I think because it was designed to have a very low sort of power hierarchy. Everybody was actively encouraged to speak to everybody else. And I think we saw that when people were talking in the question sessions, that people were very open and emotional and honest about what they felt the speakers were talking about and their own personal experiences. Yeah, I think that's a fair reflection on how things felt. That's kind of the emotional side. But more importantly, what did we get out of it? So I think it was interesting that they kicked off with quite a lot about where African EM is at the moment. And I think coming from the UK and having friends and colleagues in South Africa, I still don't truly understand the experience of what it's like to work in that environment. And I think starting off the conference for an international audience where we understood the incredible challenges that they have out there, particularly in the public system, about delivering 
as good a healthcare system as they can with what sounds to be very limited resources. And not just in South Africa, once you move outside of South Africa into some of the poorer nations where the availability of emergency care is really low. And I know that that's something the African Federation for Emergency Medicine is working really hard on. But it was really brought into stark perspective about how tough it is in some rural areas of, of Africa where access to emergency care is almost absent. I think there was a, a really interesting perspective offered by Heike along those lines. because So she kicked off the conference with her talk, which was very much focused in African solutions for African problems, which sounds like it needs a bit of explanation. So I guess that's about not applying the context of the UK or Australia or the States to Africa because of those resource issues, because of the challenges and the context in which people are working. And they need to know about what's happening in those places, just like we need to know about how emergency care is being delivered in Africa. And I certainly learned some amazing take-home things that I can bring back to my context. But it's about not imposing our contextual understanding on what's happening in a place that we have very limited experience of. And to that end, that really made me think about how appropriate it was that we were there at all. But then the Bad EM guys were very open and flexible about that. I think recognising that there was something financial to be gained from having people from higher income countries coming and supporting African attendees. I think that was really important and really key. And that ethos of working together, collaborating together to learn from one another, completely mutual learning, not this sort of turning up as a, an amazing clinician from a very developed nation with lots of money to just tell you how it should be done. It was collaborative all the way through. And I think that was really refreshing and absolutely what was needed. It's a really interesting truth there as well, though. The idea that we can just sort of deliver an ambulance to a rural setting in Africa and expect it to work when it's not built into a system is just crazy. And we heard later on in the day when Dave was speaking about teaching people BLS is all well and good. But if you don't have BLS as part of a system for cardiac support, then what's the point? You know, you just can't sort of individually sort of put a small thing into a system and expect the whole thing to work. And there was this concept of a relief porn, which I think has been talked about elsewhere. But again, this idea that you can't just go in, do something which you think is good for you and you think you're doing a good thing without working very much alongside the people who are locally going to be left with the problems when you leave and making sure that it's relevant to them and it has longevity and sustainability. Yeah, and I, I obviously have a secret vested interest in this kind of stuff as my husband works in the non-government organisation and development sector and has done for some time. And I think that's a, a really important question we need to ask ourselves in the context of thinking about going to work in places in Africa, in other continents where care is developing that whether we're actually contributing what we think we're contributing or whether we're actually detracting from that system. So there was some really challenging stuff from me from a professional and a personal point of view that came out of being a part of those conversations as well as learning some clinical stuff. I suppose linked to that was Nat Thirtle's talk. She's worked with Médecins Sans Frontières for many years and she talked about the difference between advocacy and being a clinician. Well, not necessarily the difference, but how sometimes what's required of us as clinicians, both working abroad, but also working at home, in fact, more so working at home, is that our responsibility as a clinician is to advocate for patients who are perhaps not able to advocate for themselves. And she drew some really interesting analogies from what it would be like working in a war zone where you have to advocate for your patients and really work hard to make sure that they've got good outcomes and that even the potential to have a good outcome. 
and how that's not that dissimilar from looking after somebody who's got terrible health needs and extremely difficult social circumstances in London. The point about advocacy, about standing by your patient and supporting them if they cannot do it themselves was really well made and, and had a lot of feeling within the audience that that's something that we can take away and bring back home. Yeah, and there were some other really powerful talks like Caleb Blachnick's talk about the gender unicorn and how we can look after our LGBTQIA patients in the emergency department and in pre-hospital care was really applicable around the world. Those issues are facing us as clinicians, meeting people who are perhaps not fitting into the boxes that we might have grown up believing that we could fit people into and how that can impact their healthcare, their access to healthcare, and how we can smooth that for them to make it easier for them to get the care they need and to be treated with respect. And Cal's talk was fantastic. There's a whole load of learning points on the St. Eminem's blog actually coming from that talk. But it's a really hot topic, I think, at the moment in care, and it should be. We need to treat these patients well. They're an extremely vulnerable group who are often struggle to access the health care that they need at the time that they need it. And particularly for us in the emergency department, we may be the people that they come to and we need to make sure that we are meeting them exactly where they need us to meet them. Gender Unicorn, if you've not seen it, there's a nice graphic on the website. It talks about the differences between gender identity, gender expression, sex assignment at birth, what they're physically attracted to, and what they're emotionally attracted to. And that's just a really good way of describing. But from a health point of view, the data that Caleb was bringing out about physical health problems and mental health problems as a result of this and not acceptance and not understanding and healthcare workers not working well with people who have different gender identities was actually quite shocking. I mean, the the rates of suicide and the rates of self-harm, as an example of one of those aspects, means that this is a very vulnerable group and we should really be working hard to ensure that they can access healthcare and when they do, that it's fair, honest and right. I couldn't agree more. Day one was really good because it did set the scene. So it got us all thinking about healthcare in a wider context and particularly about healthcare in Africa because that's where it is set. And there's some other great talks on day one about um, use of echo and paediatric myocarditis in African settings. I thought that was very interesting, partly from my perspective, is that <laughs> there's some comments like from Jacques along the lines of, well, you see this chest x-ray, there's an infusion, well, it's obviously TB. Or you see this pericardial effusion, well, it's obviously TB. Well, of course it is in that context, but it's not in Virchester. And again, it's an obvious thing, but it's a reminder that you cannot just translate UK medicine into an African setting. It is another specialty and you need to embed there for a long period of time. And one of the things which was said is that if you are going to go out and support people or help or whatever, then going for a, a longer period of time is is helpful. And I think, oh, I think Saad was talking about a minimum of about three months to really get yourself embedded into the local clinical work and so that you can actually become effective. And speaking to other colleagues, three months seems to be about right. Yeah. And it really reminded me of Robert Lloyd's blog post that he wrote for us quite a while back about his experiences in Kailicha and how he had almost expected to go out there and be able to provide care. But the confronting nature of the differences, meaning that actually it took him some time to feel like he was up to speed to be able to provide the care that the local doctors were providing. So Saad's point is a great one that 
there's an opportunity for you to go and learn some amazing skills, particularly around trauma. That came out a lot over the three days of the conference, the way that they see so much more particularly penetrating trauma than certainly we do in Australia and that the I saw when I was working in the UK. And so there's definitely something to learn there, but there's almost a, a reversal of expectation when you, when you get there in terms of what you may be able to provide from the outset. And that's why that longer period can be quite useful. So then in the evening, oh, there's some other talks which are really good, but in the evening, there was lots of activity. There was uh, running and a beautiful place to go running. Walks up to the dam, which is an amazing setting. Swimming in the dam, doing all sort of crazy stuff like that. And then drinks, food, and a lot of fireside chat. And some of which was sort of semi-organized, but basically getting people to sit down and discuss and argue and debate what we'd heard during the day. And just anything, just talk about whatever takes a fancy but those are really powerful learning experiences for most people there and of course with live music in the backdrop don't forget the live musical cat will be very upset so cat evans organized it and she's a great music fan and every night had live bands which is crazy but great fun great fun and then into day two uh, more workshoppy on day two so we did a workshop on feedback which was really good fun it's something we're running at the teaching co-op course later this year in manchester which we'll probably tell you about a little bit more later on We've done it quite a few times now, and it's that understanding of how to give feedback in tricky circumstances. So when things might not have gone brilliantly well, or those really challenging areas, so things like behavior, how we give feedback and how we make it powerful, how we make it useful, how we make it productive. And it's always a great workshop to do because people come out of it with really different ideas. Yeah, I think it's really evolved in the three years maybe since we started to put it together. And I think, I think it's pretty good. I'm kind of proud of it. I think we do well. Going back to day two. Day two. Yeah. Um, there was some people cutting up cars and doing some crazy stuff. We didn't do that, but people seem to enjoy it quite a lot on one of the other workshops. And then there was some other stuff going on. There's a great talk by Penny Wilson, who people will know perhaps from the Bits and Bumps blog, I think from Northwest Australia, yeah. I do believe. But I think she's often travels around the world. And she did a nice talk on, can I X-ray this pregnant patient? I'll summarise. Yes, you can, if it's indicated. Yeah. And that's a fair way to, to think about it. And she's, she challenged us to think about imaging alternatives, and um, particularly ultrasound, and thinking about ways to reduce the radiation dose. But basically, yeah, treating the mum is in the best interest of the baby as well, um, which is a great take-home message. And she was followed on by our own Ross Fisher talking about foreskins. And I think he's done a podcast for us on this before. So I'm not going to go over everything he said. We can just remind you to go and look for that. But he was talking about basically other than xeroderma obliterans, foreskins don't need to be treated in the pediatric emergency department. Those problems are generally going to get better by themselves and we shouldn't think about foreskins so much. Probably shouldn't talk about it so much either. So I might just move on. Although I would say I did like the way that he did that talk. So instead of just giving the talk, what he did is he set a series of questions out in the audience and each topic was introduced by a member of the audience basically acting as a parent and asking the question of what would I do with this? And then he kind of answered it. And I thought that was a really good way of dealing with this sort of talk where essentially he's acting as the clinician dealing with a set of problems coming into the emergency department. That kind of worked. I like that. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to steal that idea and use it for some other talks. Yeah, me too. I'm going to add it to my creative armamentarium. And then off, we talked about tracheostomy emergencies in children. Again, a very South African focused talk, but 
some interesting learning points there about if you have a chronically unwell child with a chronic health problem is how do you get them back into the community when perhaps the community services aren't there? And that was about patient education and working with families as opposed to working not against families, but just telling people what to do doesn't work. You have to work with them to look out of the needs of the of the patient. And in particular, in this case, tracheostomy problems in children, which can be tricky. And the work that was done there was really incredible, actually. The lady, I think it was Jane Booth and her team, the work that they've done in South Africa is amazing. And then more on ophthalmology, obviously, quite interesting to me uh, with being married to Fiona, who's an ophthalmologist, talking about ophthalmology problems in remote South Africa. A couple of things there. There was a bit of MacGyvering doing about how you do washouts in the eye using a butterfly needle. That was quite interesting. But also the idea that you can use electronic media. And this particular, this is something called the Vula app on an iPhone to, or any mobile phone, to assist people in remote areas about the management of their eye problems. And this is something which William Mappam had talked about. And it's made a real difference to the quality of eye care across South Africa and I think in other African nations. So really interesting stuff. Have a look at that. Yeah. Then we had Tim Hardcastle, a trauma surgeon, talking about chest strains. So having alluded to the high proportions of penetrating trauma in South Africa, it's no surprise that they put a lot of chest strains in, many more than I have, I presume many more than you have as well. Um, and what's interesting is that they've started to use a drain that allows them to collect the blood that's draining out of a hemothorax and then put it back into the patient. So retransfuse the blood back to the patient, having gone through a blood warmer. It doesn't solve the problems of coagulopathy because your plasma won't necessarily be in the same proportions as it was before. And you may need to anticoagulate the blood a little bit before you give it back. But it's a great solution for the service that they have there with the needs, with the patients, with the availability of blood in a place where chest trauma is pretty common. So this made me think about what we're doing in the UK, having taken three litres out of somebody's chest the other week and basically then throwing all of that stuff away whilst I then got a load of stuff from the blood bank and then put it back in at the top and obviously trying to manage a coagulopathy as a result of all that. It really did make me think about whether we're doing this. And I don't know whether anybody's doing it in the UK. I'm not sure if you know or whether anybody's doing it in Australia. No, I don't know of anyone doing it either in the UK or in Australia. Although I know that Cliff and Brian were out um, from Sydney Hems with me and they were certainly interested in having a look at this drain. So who knows? And then a couple of other things we talked about in the afternoon. We talked about coagulopathy, which was really interesting. That was a kind of a debate. And I think the conclusion from that is do the basics well. I mean, yes, you might end up doing some crazy stuff with Reboa and eCPR and stuff, but actually manage coagulopathy, do the basics well stick to you know TXA one to one to one stop the bleeding compression that kind of stuff is is the way to get out of this manage the acidosis manage the temperature do the basics well before you start going off and doing any crazy stuff with cannulas yeah I think that's a great take-home point from that on similar things we heard from Fazana Array again speaking to our colleagues from abroad intubation of the profoundly shocked patient I thought this was quite interesting because with the penetrating trauma, they are the patients who I find in my ED who really do give me quite high levels of concern when you're intubating them. They're often young, they're often fairly well compensated, and you might not realize just how well compensated they are before you give them the induction drugs. But how to actually approach that group of patients is quite difficult. Bottom lines, it's going to be familiar to many people on this podcast who work in the foamed world. Ketamine is the best agent. It's pretty good, but 
actually they use induction doses, which are really quite low, possibly anesthesia, not necessarily anesthesia, high doses of rocuronium, and then get your push dose pressors ready before you start intubating the patient and be really prepared for cardiovascular collapse after intubation. So that was kind of interesting. And linked to that was this talk, an amazing talk actually from Don Pinnock about gangs in South Africa, about how the violence and the sexual assaults in particular and the domestic violence affects the, the work of the EDC and, and basically society at large. Yeah, so the the conversation about um, intubating the shock patient was definitely reflective of our practice in Sydney Hems. We see a lot of shocked patients in the pre-hospital environment and we are using ketamine and rock as our go-to drugs. We're reducing our doses right down probably around about what they were saying, so about half a milligram per kilogram of ketamine. And we're currently using two milligrams per kilogram of rock uranium for our uh, trauma RSIs. So yeah, it, it was certainly not news to us, but it's good to hear that we're not completely different in our practice. Then there was more on pre-hospital services in South Africa and the challenges there. And then you got in with some stuff around sleep. Yes, I spoke in the last session of the day about sleep and sleep hygiene with bringing the new context of having crashed my car after a particularly busy couple of days at work. Um, unfortunately, planning a talk about sleep doesn't protect you from the effects of sleep deprivation either. But what I found when I was putting this talk together was that the need for sleep and the effects of fatigue really don't respect where you are in the world, how old you are, how experienced you are, because just like we've had prominent cases from the UK of junior doctors crashing their cars on the way home, there was a prominent doctor in South Africa who had the same thing. So it's really, I think the talk itself resonated with the people there we're all working shifts. We're all overtired. There are some simple things we can do to get better sleep and to look after ourselves a bit better. So I just put them together. And again, we've, we've blogged about that a couple of times. So there's plenty of other stuff on the blog about that. Also in that session was Saad Lari talking about super bosses and how you can be a, a leader, a kind of a mentor leader in the emergency department. And Saad really embodies this. He's an incredible human being and somebody I'm very honored to call a friend. And his Take-home points were really about not being the leader that stands above, but standing within the team, amplifying the talents of who you've got working with you and encouraging them, recognizing and rewarding their efforts, being positive role models and creating that positive environment. And Saad is 100% embodying that. He's an amazing person. It's always a pleasure to hear him talk. I'd agree. And then we finished off for the day. Well, again, more music, more fireside chats. More poi. I'm not going to explain what poi is. Look it up. P-O-I. Very, very dangerous with fire. More um, fitness up to the dam, swimming, running through the hills. Again, wonderful experience and, and, and great people. And then up early in the morning again, the next day for the morning workshops. Um, you did the critical care and treagle medicine one, I think. It was nice, actually. It was Cliff and Brian and I partnered with Joe Park-Ross, Willem Stassen and Louis Jordan, who were local South African pre-hospital specialists. And so we kind of paired up one Australian working, one South African working person together to discuss our context. And what was really reassuring was we find particularly the non-clinical challenges that we face are really similar. The human factor stuff, the issues of access to healthcare, the issues of the socioeconomic groups of our patients and, and their family setups and all of that stuff. It's really not that different here in Australia from how it is in South Africa. So that was encouraging. We were able to find some solutions together, which was good too. 
I did the Wilderness Medicine workshop with Ross Hoffmeyer and uh, Kirsten Kingmer. That was great fun. It was poignant, I think, because the scenario that we were given was a crashed paraglider, which both Ross and Kirsten have done with quite significant injuries, which we might talk about later. Really interesting to get out there in the wilderness with people who do this on a regular basis and to, again, understand that you can't take a hospital-based doctor, put them in the middle of a forest and expect them to perform fantastically well. This is a skill set that you need to learn. It's not for amateurs, but there is courses out there and there are experts out there that you can go and work with. If it's something that interests you, go and find an expert, but don't just have the, I suppose, arrogance to think that you can just take hospital-based skills and be a pre-hospitalist. It just doesn't work like that. Yeah, I definitely learned that. As you as you know, I've written 104 things I learned about that in, in a year. Um, but yeah, there was a really a theme throughout Bad EM of dropping the arrogance of thinking that we know it all, not that I'm accusing any of our listeners of being arrogant, but from a sort of self-reflection point of note, it, it's always good to be challenged and to realise how much you don't know. I think that was something to do with the the power hierarchy that we talked about at the beginning, because there was none, or very little, or certainly none that I perceived, is that you heard a lot more suggestions from the group. It wasn't people coming to listen to the experts. It was people coming together to discuss. And I think that did come out a lot in the workshops. I enjoyed the workshops a lot. There was an ECG workshop going on at the same time, which is was done by Saad and Camille and Vidya, I think. And, and Jack. that got great Jack reviews as well. Oh, and Jack, yes. So looking at ECGs, which is you know clearly a very important thing for us to do. What else did we talk about that day? We talked about digital health. That was quite interesting. And then in the afternoon, we heard a little bit more about palliative care from Tammy Bailey-Stanton. That was great. Really interesting again. Palliative care has been a theme through SMAC. It's good to hear it in an African context as well, because it was it is different. And then we heard from um, Kirsten Kingmer again about her experience of crashing a paraglider in the Alps, which was pretty horrific, actually. And then further injuries that she sustained when she was in South Africa following an assault. Very personal story and some really interesting lessons about what it's like to translate from being a provider to being a patient and how, I mean, it wasn't her words, but I suppose listening to how scary it can be, how frightening it can be. And how the body and mind are linked in that sometimes, you know, if your body's broken, you're really strong mentally, it can get you through. But actually, if you've had a, a, an injury or an event which is mentally challenging, then does your physicality help you get through? But w- the two are clearly linked. And I thought she provided a really interesting talk about that, although it was quite emotional. Yeah, definitely. And the other thing she brought up was the language barrier as well, having to go to hospital in France and not really speaking enough French and just reminding us how the little things that we do to comfort our patients, even when they can't understand us, that kind of simple holding a hand and making eye contact can actually really make a big difference. Um, so she kind of gripped the room and then handed the baton on to Rowan to finish the day with a talk about chronic pain, which is a challenging slot for him to have. But he did an amazing job as well, talking about how we can give the power back to the patient with chronic pain when we see them in the emergency department and various things that can help them. They tend to be the patients that make our hearts sink a little bit. And Ian's talked about that at SMAC back in SMAC Gold. But his sort of practical solution was that there are some things that can help that breathing or yoga or other controlled breathing, listening to the patient's perspective and how the pain is affecting their life and then supporting them sort of psychologically. The evidence for exercise and then helping to rewire the meaning of pain as well. And all of those things can help us to give some agency back to that patient, to give them control 
rather than just doling out drugs for them, which I think increasingly around the world we're finding is not the answer. I think I've got another podcast which I've done with um, my colleague Kevin Marco Jones about psychiatry patients. We'll talk about that in detail on that other podcast. But one theme there is that we as emergency physicians sometimes say, okay, well, that, okay, the patient's got all these problems, but that problem isn't mine. I'm not even going to address it. So the patient with the chronic pain, you've got chronic pain, whatever. You know, somebody else's problem, off you go. Psychiatry patients, we often do this, you know, the medical bits of the psychiatry patient, it's mine. The psych bits, not mine. Send it off to psychiatry. And I think we need to stop doing that. I mean, compartmentalizing the different problems in the same patient, I'm not sure that's the right thing to do. I'm not sure if it's in the patient's best interests. And emergency physicians, we should pride ourselves on being able to deal with what comes through the door. And I think just saying that isn't my problem, it doesn't sit well with me. No, and I think... Annette Alenio, who was chairing, rounded the whole day off with this absolutely wonderful summary sentence when she said, sometimes our patients simply call for us to be human, compassionate, to love. That is many times what we need to do. And I just think, yeah, that's absolutely, that was kind of the theme of the day, the theme of the conference, a message that really spoke to me and kind of got into the ethos of the emergency care that I really want to be providing. Okay, so that protects us to day four which again was a half day really, wasn't it? It was just sort of up until around late lunch and finished with lunch. More workshops, simulation workshop, which I think you did with colleagues, Ian Summers and looking at Sandra Vigors, Rowan Dias, um, Andy Tag, Ross Fisher, you know, great people to, to work with simulation. Yeah, we talked around some particular challenges in simulation and tried to come up with some solutions. And I think it worked really well considering it was after the Fomioki, which will not be discussed. Very secret. was marvellous. Yeah, it was. Anyway, yes. So we had some workshops and there were some other workshops going on at the same time. Yep. So I did the major incident workshop, which was great. Talked about the Manchester bombing in some detail. We talked about the differences between that and the major incident occurring in Mozambique, a big fuel tanker explosion, which was you know, just horrific. Um, about the challenges about having a system and about a common language for emergency medicine and major incident management which I talked about, the MIMS system, command, safety, control, assessment, triage, treatment, transport, the CSCATTT. Having common languages and having a system works in major instance. And there's lots and lots of transferability that we can do across nations and across different sorts of problems. There was also a venomous plants and animals workshop, which I kind of could see out of the back of my eye whilst I was doing the major incident. One that looked really interesting. There were a lot of snakes. Yeah, actual snakes. And I think there were quite a lot of spiders. Actual snakes, spiders as well. I don't think you would have enjoyed it. No. Well, I don't mind snakes, but spiders, no, just no. But anyway, they were very context specific, slightly different creatures from the ones that I potentially might have to deal with. And that was my excuse for avoiding that altogether. And then we sort of finished off with a variety of talks, really. We talked about organ donation with Dave Thompson, about how that's not really happening in South Africa in the way that we perhaps we would hope. Caroline Lewis talked about working on cruise ships, um, something which I kind of wanted to do, but it's, it's not really fitted into the rest of my life. But it sounds like a lot of fun. And there's some quite significant medicine out there. I think the lesson I took away from that is, you know, you're not going on a big jolly on a cruise ship. There's some proper sick people out there and you will be challenged. And the level of medical ability that you need is actually quite high. It's not an amateur's job. And then uh, NJ Slabbert, who's currently in Canada, but has worked all over the place, talked about her experiences of working basically all over the place and how experiencing different systems and different styles of medicine and different health economies has built her into the um, excellent clinician that she is today. So real interesting approach and a big theme around patient safety and the importance of self-care, which again, were themes that ran throughout the conference. Yeah. And then we all went our separate ways and it was very sad to see the end of it. 
Do you know what? I, th- I was thinking that it genuinely was sad because we'd met some great friends and it was kind of special in that way. It was just different. It was a, and I go back to this word, it was a co-created conference. It was a shared experience. And I think everybody contributed to it, which I don't think you get everywhere. And I'd love to recapture that in future conferences. I mean, we're going to try later this year. So we will do our little plugs now, won't we, for St. Emlyn's. So we've got the St. Emlyn's live conference on the 9th of October. Got some amazing speakers, including some fantastic clinician called Natalie May, who's doing a keynote, um, as is Claire Richmond from Sydney Hems, which will be fabulous. Got some amazing speakers. I'll put the new speakers that we got up on the website, but essentially it's going to be a one day international conference for not a lot of cash. Come to Manchester, you'll have a great time. And that's followed up by the teaching co-op course where it's essentially, it's a masterclass of medical education, but it's based around bedside, shop floor, departmental. How do you become a better teacher and learner? Which is not, it's not a medical education course that teaches you lots and lots of theory. This is the practicalities of how do you get better. And everybody we know who's been on that course has come away as a better teacher, better lecturer, better workshop host, better bedside teacher, just better. We've recently made the commitment to adding an extra layer to that stuff. So it's something that we did at the teaching course version in Cape Town before, immediately before Bad EM was to add in these meta moments where we talk about a medical education topic. We teach the participants or we learn together about a medical education topic. And then we break down the educational planning side of that particular part of the workshop to make it really meta. Why did we teach this topic in this way? Why? How could we have done it differently? And we are trying to get rid of lectures as much as possible because lectures aren't the most efficient way to learn. And there's so many other things we can do. And I think that's really added a a level of quality. So I'm excited about how it's going to be in in Manchester. I think it's going to work really well. Yeah, the Meta Moments works really well in Cape Town. They were your idea, Natalie, but I will admit they are brilliant. But it tells you, I think it, it really explains to you why good education just doesn't happen. It's not talent. It's hard work and understanding and reflection and development. And sort of revealing what goes on in the background, I think has been very, very helpful. It's actually been very helpful to me to understand why people do the things that they do. And actually that helps you give them feedback as well, because then you can understand, well, I understand why you did that. Did it work? Did it not? Why did it work? Why did it not? So yeah, that'll be a lot of fun. So those are the two things. And conference-wise, I know we've been going on for ages, but do you want to tell us a little bit about Resuscitology? That was a new a new conference out in Australia. Yeah, so this is um, one of Cliff Reed's ideas that I was privileged to be part of. So Cliff has uh, has a passion for education and learning together, particularly in the context of critical care. And he wanted to put together a case-based reflective learning experience. I don't know how much of that was shaped by having been at Bad EM as well, because we had some plans for resuscitology before we went, but certainly there were elements that we brought into that. So it was a two-day residential course in the Blue Mountains this time, which are just about an hour and a half, two hours west of Sydney. And we were up in the, uh, a hotel in the mountains, all most of us staying together in the hotel. And we chatted through some really tough resuscitation cases. Our participants brought the cases themselves. So actual experiences that they'd had, they submitted them to us in advance. We looked over them, we picked the ones that we thought had some really good learning points. And then we talked through the critical care elements, how we can make care better. But we also talked about the human factors stuff using the uh, steps approach. So self-team environment, patient system way of analysing the cases to find the learning. And it was a little bit experimental because it was the first time, but it 
seemed to go down really well. The, the feedback we've had has been really positive. Uh, we had the cases interspersed with long lunch breaks. And now I've got to say this right because it's not German. Apparently it's Norwegian. So it's Freeluftsliv, which is the concept of a fresh air life or living outdoors. So we had actual breaks where we went outdoors and we threw balls around, kicked balls around. Some people did handstands, not me because I can't do handstands yet. And unicycles, there was a unicycle and we just kind of did some wellness stuff alongside the cases. And then we had interspersed moments of inspiration from the faculty who were Cliff, uh, Carl Harbig, Brian Burns, Chris Nixon, uh, Jeff Healy and me. And I think that's everybody. Any sort of big medical learning points that came out of that? Anything that you came back with to say, that's something I want to take back into my practice? Yeah, one of the really, it's it's kind of less clinical, but it really, really valuable point that I took away was around breaking bad news. So one of the cases that we discussed was particularly challenging. And then there was a, a moment of having to break bad news to a family on top of a whole load of other emotional stuff that had happened. And one of the participants suggested, you know, it's okay for you not to be the person who breaks that bad news. And if one of your consultant colleagues is there and they know that you've been through this stuff and you've done the resuscitation and all the horrific things, they can be the person to step in and take that load from you. And that can make a big difference. And that's not something I've ever really thought about before. It's always been something I thought was my responsibility as the treating clinician. But it's that team-based approach to looking after the critically ill injured patient means that we can actually offload some of the really cognitively, emotionally challenging stuff as well as the clinical stuff too. That might link in with the idea that we've had that question before is, you know, who debriefs the debriefer? So often when we've had a difficult resuscitation and you're the team leader, is that expectation that you're going to be the person who leads it and be in control of it and help everybody else. And then you walk away and go, well, okay, I'll just get on with it then. And that's not always the right thing to do either. Because if you're involved in the episode itself, you're emotionally invested in it. And maybe you're not as objective as you should be. Not should be, not as objective as perhaps you can be. And then if it is a traumatic experience, then you probably need debriefing yourself. So I think that kind of links with the same sort of thing, isn't it? You don't have to do everything as a team leader. And you're not above being involved and being influenced by the events yourself. Yeah, absolutely. And I've had experience of exactly what you've described from, we had a difficult resuscitation case that I came out of a non-clinical day, a clinical support day and ran a debrief for the team. And I think that actually worked really well, partly because when I was saying, you know, run me through what actually happened as, you know, good debrief start with the, let's start with the facts. I genuinely didn't know. And that can allow people to not feel like they're telling you Let's just all tell the story again. So that I think that can be really valuable. And of course, it allows people to bring you as the team leader into the conversation about how things went. So yeah, thinking about offloading the, the breaking of bad news was a kind of, it's a simple thing, but actually potentially has a, a big impact. And a principle we can take to other things as well. So that's helpful. Okay, so we've gone on for ages. We're way over our normal 20 minute length, but that's because there's been lots to talk about and it was you know, a really interesting month of conferences, Baddy M. Are you going to go again next year? Yes, I hope so. I hope so. I've tried to prize the dates out of them to make sure I can make it because we're planning some more resuscitology. I think dates will be out fairly soon. I think it's around October-ish, but I'm not entirely sure as yet. I think it is going to be later in the year and they are keen to do it again. So I think it'd be fantastic. Uh, resuscitology, are you going to do that again? 
Yes, we are running Resuscitology again on the 15th and 16th of November is our currently set dates. We're putting that plan together just now. You can register at resuscitology.com. And you can register for St. Emelins Live by going to the St. Emelins website. And we've also got the links there to the teaching co-op course as well. And we'd love to see you in Virchester or Manchester, as it's better known. So with that in mind, conferences, I think, are a little bit controversial in some respects. Not everybody goes to them, and I don't think that everybody sees the value in them. They can, can sometimes feel that it's just people getting together for a chat. But increasingly, I think it's because the quality of them has improved I'm getting much more out of the experience and in particular, the connections that we make with people, the discussions that we have, the narratives, and a lot more work going into making sure that people are involved in the content as opposed to just being passive participants. I think Baddy M Fest really typified that. Sounds like Resuscitology did as well. And it's something which we should be asking of, of all conferences now is, you know, it's not just about people coming to attend and listen but how can they participate both before, during, and potentially after with the use of social media? So two great examples and something which we hope to take forward into the future. So with nothing else to say, thank you so much for your time. It's now still 16 degrees here. Oh, let me check. Hang on. I'll review. The sun's still shining. I can tell you that much. Uh, It's currently, oh, it's no, it's still 16 degrees here too. Okay, so I'm hoping for a little bit more sunshine later on today. And with that in mind, I wish everybody a wonderful time. Enjoy your emergency medicine, and we hope to see you soon, preferably in Manchester. Thanks for listening. Bye.